folks, I'm sorry. I was sitting over talking to folks, and they said, you're almost on. I said, okay, that's fine. They said, you're almost on. I said, okay. I figured somebody's going to come up and introduce me. They said, you know, it's five minutes after. Am I supposed to go up there? Yeah, just go. So <laughs> here I am. Glad to be with you folks tonight. Do a lot of this stuff, do a lot of speaking, and I, I told some of the organizers down here, it's just really neat to be walking around. This atmosphere, I don't see this often, so I don't say this just everywhere I go. In fact, I don't know if I've ever said it. But you guys just seem to be really electric and interested, and I think that's a, a great uh, group here to start. And we're discussing the greatest topic in the world tonight. I mean, you know, J.P. Moreland, he's, he's a really good speaker, and it's a good, uh, you know, he's, he's a good guy. He's just a little bit of disadvantage. He doesn't have the best topic in the world, you know? So. <laughs> Um, we have an advantage in here. And I was also really blessed today to hear Bill Craig's testimony that, that he read for you, because a lot of us know that fellow. I remember when he came, I think he was doing a PhD in math, right? The fellow that they were talking about, a PhD in math. And then I thought, hey, here's two guys sitting right here down in the front row who could tell the same kind of, of testimonies. We got him here tonight. Uh, this guy on the left is Abdul Murray, and the guy in the right, <laughs> yeah, 6'8", like he says, not too many guys from Lebanon are 6'8". Um, and next to him is Nabil Qureshi. Uh, these guys are pretty cool. Abdul is a lawyer, and he's uh, getting ready to leave his uh, law practice to go full-time into Christian ministry. He's already written a book on, on working with uh, Muslims. And uh, Nabil Qureshi is an MD, and uh, he's done an MA at Biola in apologetics. He's doing another MA in New Testament from Duke and plans to do a PhD. You know, one of those uh, uh, alphabet soup guys. But what's neat about these two guys is they were both just Muslims just a little while ago, a few years ago. They both come to Christ. They both debate regularly, are into apologetics big time, both writing books. Abdu's already got a book out. Uh, I didn't miss one of yours, did I? You already written like five books and I just don't know about it? No. Oh, and for you guys who are like really, really rough, they're both into mixed martial arts, so don't mess around with them. <laughs> Nabil has a second degree black belt in Taekwondo, and Abdul always tells him he's nothing. He just can't handle him, you know? So, you know, I mean, you know, it helps to, when you're in apologetics, it helps to work with mixed martial arts. They kind of <laughs> go along, go along together. I was an ice hockey coach at Liberty for, uh, I don't know, not nine years I was a head coach. And so I tell people, hockey goes along with, with apologetics too, because Christians and hockey players solve their problems in roughly the same manner. <laughs> okay, well, that's enough of an introduction. But seriously, that, I just said that because these kind of testimonies, like JP said, the bad news is they're pretty rare, but they are all around us. And here's a few present. I'm sure there's more out in the crowd. The, the Lord does wonderful things and lives are still being transformed and as you heard tonight in the testimony there's still Damascus experiences going on. I, I praise the Lord for that. Well the topic tonight uh, in this session is the resurrection and I'm going to be introducing it here briefly and then I'm going to walk down to the floor and I'm going to spend all my time walking back and forth. Some of you perhaps seen me do this before. Uh, I tell people I have a PowerPoint for this, but I'm not going to be using it because it's just got to be frustrating. You have to keep running back and pushing the next slide or saying next and so on. I was doing this in Oxford a few years ago, and someone said to me, you don't need a PowerPoint. You're a human PowerPoint. And, and you'll see, because I'll be doing a lot of walking across the front here. So I want you to track with me while we talk a little about historiography and why the resurrection is so exceptional by way of, of evidence. 
But if you want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, let me just say a few things by way of introduction. I think without any question, this is the grandest passage of Scripture in the New Testament on the resurrection. It's the earliest extended portion in the New Testament. Uh, friend and foe, liberal and conservative, date this book, 1 Corinthians, to about 55 AD, give or take. So about 25 years after the, the uh, cross. We'll talk a little bit more about historiography in a few minutes and why that's important. But Paul starts out like this. I'm going to be paraphrasing, but the first two verses, Paul says, he says, when I was with you Corinthians, he said, I preached the message to you, I gave you the gospel, and what you do with the gospel, basically, he doesn't say determines where you spend eternity, but he says what you do with the gospel determines whether or not you're saved. And he said, that's, that's what I preached. I gave you the gospel, and the question concerns your response your life response, your faith response, your response to data. Now, if I were writing this out, I'd have an end note right here, and I'd say that whenever Paul defines the gospel, and, and the places where the gospel data are defined is usually in Paul's epistles or the book of Acts, and the gospel data, whatever else is mentioned in the vicinity, these three doctrines are always mentioned. Deity, death, resurrection of Jesus. Now, we often say death, burial, resurrection. But actually, the New Testament doesn't mention burial. I mean, it does in the Gospels. But when it's telling the Gospel later, it's mentioned several times. But it's not mentioned all that often. Deity, death, resurrection is always mentioned, are always mentioned. And then Paul says, what have you done with this? What is your stance vis-a-vis this data? And in verse 3, he says... I gave you what I was given as of first importance. I gave you what I was given as of first importance. The material I'm giving you, two important things. I passed on material that I heard from others. And secondly, this is the most important thing I can tell you. This is of first importance because it concerns the gospel. Now, let me stop here for a moment, talk a little bit about my methodology, a little about his historiography and then we're gonna go down and do the, the uh, walking and talking for the rest of this. By the way, at the time of the end, I don't, it, it takes me a little while to do this. Um, we're done at 9.30, but I've been told that there's nothing else going on in here and we can stay a little bit longer if you folks wanna stay for Q&A after it's over. If you need to get up and go or you told somebody you'd meet them at 9.30, no offense whatsoever, just you know, get up and leave at 9.30. But if some of you want to stay around, especially if you, some of you who consider yourself skeptics or questioners, you want to talk, I think there's some microphones around. We'll just see how that goes. Um, I won't go any longer than 9.30 uh, with the lecture itself. I might even end a few minutes early. But just feel free to stick around if you want to ask some questions or hear other people ask questions. Okay. I spent 10 years as a, as ten, more than 10 years actually, but 10 straight years as a skeptic and a questioner. I, I was raised in a German Baptist church in Detroit, Michigan. I hope I don't offend anybody from Detroit here, but I think Detroit's a great place to be from. <laughs> and uh, good place to watch hockey, but good place to be from. And um, when I was growing up, I, I actually, sports came into it a lot. I played football and I played hockey, and I spent my afternoons playing sports, and at night, I would get back to my doubts. And I would I'd always be concerned with where did I leave off the night before? Is there any basis for Christianity? Now, some of my friends got concerned about me. My parents got concerned about me. 
Uh, I did wander uh, in my beliefs. I wondered what else was true. I came very close to becoming a Buddhist. In fact, sometimes I think I kind of went over the other side. I, I came very close to, the, to that way of thinking. And, and my folks were concerned, friends were concerned, and they would say, hey, check out this evidence, check out this evidence, you know, try this. And I went through this, try this, try this, examine this, and I rejected almost everything I saw. In fact, during that time I debated Christians. I told them they had no basis for believing the Bible was inspired. Uh, they got angry at me. One guy wanted to fight one time. You know, I mean, this is Detroit, so um, <laughs> it, was, it was a rough atmosphere. But I was really, really interested in truth. In fact, this is not the guy who wanted to fight. Another guy came up to me. This guy was big. He's like Abdu here. And he walked up to me in college and he said, I just when I was having my doubts. And he said, I hear you don't believe the Bible's the word of God. And I said, you're right. And he looked down at me and he said, man, you've got seven demons in you. And he turned and walked away. And I thought, demon, fight, demon, fight. Okay, maybe the demons are better. We'll see. But that's where I was at that time, and I didn't mind. I wasn't trying to get Christians to give up their faith, but I realized now I was begging for somebody to show me answers if there were any. And when people would say, well, check this out. Look at archaeology. Look at the reliability of the New Testament. How about fulfilled prophecy? How about this? And I kept thinking, yeah, wow, there's, there's some things here worth studying, but Christians just can't close the circle. They just can't complete the argument. And then it occurred to me that if Christians were right about the resurrection... The resurrection had something that other potential evidences did not have. It, it, there's good data, it's historical, self-defeating to deny history. Science cannot even deny history because science has to make use of historical conclusions to do science. And I thought, well, in principle, you've got some good building blocks here, but I just don't know if this argument can close the circle. So because I was of a skeptical mindset and did not accept things at face value from Scripture, I started working on a methodology that I now call the minimal facts method. I, divide, I developed in my doctoral dissertation at uh, Michigan State uh, University. I should stop and see where I am before I think about, okay, do they hate, hate Michigan State around here? Okay, we're in the West Coast. I probably can say that I'm okay. Um, now, if I said Michigan, somebody's already, I'm not from Michigan, but somebody, University of Michigan, somebody told me tonight there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, uh, academic uh, going back and forth between Cal Berkeley and Michigan. Uh, but at the time, I was just, I, I don't like Michigan either. Sorry, man. Um, <laughs> I mean, University of Michigan. Yeah, he's going to stand up in a minute. He's going to want to do something. Um, but I went to Michigan State, and I developed this methodology of working in the resurrection. Here's the way I started doing it. I, went, I sort of thought like this. If this book is the Word of God, it's like, duh, well, then Christianity's true. Uh, and if this book's the Word of God, Jesus has been raised from the dead, but I don't believe this book's the Word of God. I mean, I didn't believe it was inspired. At the time, I would have told you I thought it was pretty reliable, but I was starting to kind of slip away from reliability and think it was pretty, I, I, you know, that it was just like a book of ancient literature. So I started working on this method that says, if the Bible's inspired, Jesus has been raised from the dead. If it's not inspired, but it's reliable, Jesus has been raised from the dead. But what if the Bible, what if the New Testament is the worst it can be? A book of ancient literature. Now, it's no worse than that, right? I tell grad students all the time, you know it's a book of ancient literature because it's really, really old. There's pages and there's words on it. That's... <laughs> That's all that's required to be a book of ancient literature. And if you want, put it on a par with Homer. Say, 
well, look, I'm just wondering if the Iliad has any basis in fact, was there a Troy and was there a Trojan horse? Okay, fair question. What do we learn from the ancient world from these reports? If that's your view of the New Testament, guess what? I believe we can still get the resurrection. So I'll usually, I'll often go to State University campus, and I just say this to be provocative, you know, just to kind of tease people a little bit. And I'll say, for you Christians, Bible's the word of God, Jesus has been raised from the dead. For you who don't know, you think the Bible's probably reliable, but you don't believe it's inspired, Jesus has been raised. And for you skeptics who believe the Bible's not reliable, Jesus has been raised. So here's the bad news for you, Jesus has been raised. It's a heads I win, tails you lose argument. So you say, well, yeah, that's cute. Uh, but how do you pull that off? Well, I'm gonna use this minimal facts method that says this, almost nothing I'm gonna share with you. Now, I'm gonna start giving you some, with another method. And I'll tell you when I'm gonna start doing the minimal facts method. I'm gonna do another method called the reliability method, the middle one first. But what I'm gonna do when I get to the minimal facts portion is I'm gonna use text that scholars allow, skeptical scholars, no matter how skeptical they are, uh, atheists, that's fine, be as skeptical as you want. I'm only asking, I'm only using data from scholars who know the field. By that I mean somebody with a terminal degree, peer-reviewed publications have a position where they work in this area. That's criteria we use. You know, when you go to a medical doctor, when you go to a lawyer, when you go to somebody else, you want somebody who's a specialist in your area who's gonna give you the best possible advice and fix you up with whatever you need. So sometimes we have a bunch of websites that are readily available, and if that's your thing, if you wanna to go to the websites where all the scholars are folks with BAs who are out of their area and they claim to be scholars and they don't do any work in the area, I mean, that's fine, it's America, you can do what you want, but I'm just saying, if you go to the scholarly websites where people are as skeptical as possible, and they are atheists, atheist New Testament scholars, they're gonna admit a body of data. This is one of the most misunderstood things. Skeptical scholars will allow you to use the New Testament. In fact, if you don't use it, they will. Because they think there are some worthwhile passages. That's the only thing I'm gonna use is their data. And my thesis tonight is gonna to be, if you take a skeptical look at the New Testament, use the data they allow, there's enough data to show that Jesus was raised from the dead. That's my approach. Now, that much on methodology, a couple things about historiography. And while I'm doing that, I'll step down here. You know, when you do historiography, you ask about whether an event occurred in history, there are certain criteria. Let me tell you real quickly a, a little story that you'll get the point how this works. Years ago, my son was, many years ago, my son was eight years old, and we were sitting at the dinner table. We often had, we often would uh, read scripture with their family before dinner, and we had that time, and my son sat there, and we were done, and we prayed for the meal, and he said, Dad, my Sunday school teacher asked us this week, he wants us to report next week, how do we know the resurrection of Jesus happened? And I said, Rob, how do you know George Washington was the first president of the United States? He goes, come on, Dad. I asked, how do you know if the resurrection of Jesus happened? I said, no, Rob, I'm being serious. How do you know George Washington was the first president of the United States? He stopped and goes, you read books. And I said, what kind of books? He's eight years old. And he, and he goes, I guess you'd want to read a book from somebody who knew George Washington. Okay, 
What kind of a person who adored George Washington would, what kind of a, so we just kind of worked on this for a few moments and we thought, you know, if they were there, especially if it was enemy testimony, someone who hated George Washington, hated what he stood for, but he believed he was a courageous person or he was a good military leader or something like that, or, you know, anything like that would be really, really helpful. And he said, when he finished, he goes, okay. In other words, when you ask about the resurrection, you do history. And I don't know, because it's probably because we're in the middle of a meal. He just went, okay. And he never asked about resurrection. And I kind of forgot about it, and he kind of forgot about it, and we kept eating. And about a week later, he got home. We were at dinner again, and I said, hey, how'd that go with your Sunday school teacher asking how we know Jesus was raised from the dead? He said, yeah, he came into class, and he said, how do we know? And he, I put my hand up, and he said, Rob? And he said, how do you know George Washington was the first president of the United States? <laughs> this is a true story. And the, and the teacher went, what? And then he goes, oh, wait a minute. You're having a this kid, aren't you? So, I mean, it's not hard. <laughs> it's not hard to put some of these things together. You do resurrection like you do historical data, and you're not pulling any punches. You're not, like, inventing spiritual history to prove something. I'm going to be using facts the way the critics use it tonight, okay? So I'm going to start down here. I'm going to start with the timeline, because two of the most important things we could do in history is to get early eyewitness data. You don't have to rhyme things for, I, I teach exclusively uh, PhD students, and for PhD students, required books go by colors. So you take out your orange book, you know, that's what we do in grad school. And then we talk about alliteration, because it's easier for grad students to remember things. We don't do this with undergrads, because they don't remember whether you do it or not. But <laughs> with grad students, I say the two E's, okay? Early and eyewitness, just like the George Washington question. We want people who are there, and we want people who are in the right place. You say, well, eyewitnesses could be wrong. Yes, they are, but what are you going to do? Cite nine, nine eyewitnesses because eyewitnesses could be mistaken? No, we still use eyewitnesses. And we want them to be people who are in the right time, right place, asking the right questions, and so on. And it's real helpful if they're enemies. It's real helpful if they change their view. It's real helpful if there's checks and balances, and so on. That's how we do history. All right. On my little timeline here, that's going to be creation down there. This is the cross. Scholars usually say 30 AD, but you'd be surprised how seldom they answer that question. Uh, probably the second most popular date's 33. I'm just going to say ground zero, give or take. It's about 30 AD. Down there is 2011. Now, before I do minimal facts, let me give you a typical way that somebody, I'm going to have to be real sketchy, but when somebody says the New Testament's at least a historically trustworthy book, let me talk about how they're going to do that. If you say, well, how do I know the resurrection happened? On this timeline, I'm going to say, well, one very common on the reliability argument response is going to say, well, the book of Mark is written, and I'm going to use skeptical dates, okay? So you can see it's not that huge an issue. Uh, the book of Mark is written about 70 AD. We're only plus 40. You have to study ancient history to know how good plus 40 is. It's just, it, it's great, great time period. Okay, using critics' dates, Matthew, about 10 years later, at plus 80. Luke, about five years later, at about plus 85. Acts, plus 85, plus 90, something like that. Everybody, conservatives and liberals, puts John at about 95 AD. So my point is that at the, the worst it gets is we're about plus 65 to John. Now, critics often deal with sort of a double standard when they deal with the New Testament. 
And they're going to say, yeah, 95 AD, Matthew, uh, 50, Luke, 55. Isn't that getting a little bit late? Well, when they ask questions like that, they're either, they either I'm, I'm not trying to be mean, but either they haven't studied a lot of ancient history or they're not familiar with sources or they're just being overly critical with New Testament or whatever. Because if I said, all right, forget Jesus for right now, and let's say ground zero is the death of Alexander the Great. What are our best sources for Alexander the Great? What are the best sources? Well, there were several people who wrote during Alexander the Great's life, but we don't have any of those sources. We don't have any of them. They'd be very valuable, we don't have any of them. The sources we have for Alexander are, and I'm gonna, I'd have to keep walking way out past this window, because the best sources for Alexander date 300 to 450 years after his death about 330 BC. The two best sources are Arian and Plutarch, but they're also the latest sources. They're about plus 425 to 450 AD. That's a long time. You go, okay, fine, I get your point. Maybe Alexander's not the best example. Uh, We have better examples than that. Yes, we do, but I'm just using Alexander because he's such a prominent source. Well, how about somebody who's better data and closer to Jesus' time. Okay, how about Tiberius Caesar? He is the, the Caesar who's on the throne when Jesus dies, dies just a few years after Jesus dies. We have four major sources for Tiberius and a total of about 10 sources for Tiberius. We have more than 10 sources for Jesus, and you go, yeah, but that's those prejudiced New Testament sources. Okay, more about that in a second. Uh, use the way critics use we still have more than 10 sources for Jesus. Do you know we have a dozen and a half sources outside the New Testament for Jesus? Dozen and a half sources outside the New Testament that are within 100 to 150 years after Jesus, which is fair in the ancient world. And now when I say 100 to 150, you realize that John's a lot closer than this. But back to Tiberius. We have four sources for Tiberius. One is contemporary. Whoa, we don't have anything like that for Jesus. But as I'm going to argue tonight, we do. We have sources, I'm going to spend the rest of my time explaining, that go all the way back to 30 AD for Jesus. Okay, so next best source. By the way, the earliest one for Tiberius, the, the historian who, who gives the contemporary data, he's the least useful. The least useful of the four sources. The best source for Tiberius is Tacitus. And Tacitus, if that's Tiberius down there, ground zero, Tacitus, we'd probably be two-thirds of the way up the pews here. Because Tacitus writes, sorry, that's the last guy. Tacitus is going to, if that's John, Tacitus is going to be out here. Tacitus writes about 120 AD. He's plus 80 after Tiberius. Suetonius, plus 85. And Dio Cassius, two-thirds of the way up or further. Dio Cassius is plus 180 from Tiberius. Go, well, okay, I see where you're going, but I have the ultimate objection for you. Gospels record miracles of Jesus. That disqualifies him. Really? Well, Greco-Roman, we'd say in English, bios. It's not pronounced that way in Greek, but Greco-Roman bios. It's a genre of biography, Greco-Roman biography, the, pro- the most 
reputable writing in the ancient world. We have, say, the father of history, so-called Herodotus, all the way through such names as Thucydides and all the way up to Livy and uh, Julius Caesar himself, and I already gave you some names, uh, plenty, but we also have Tacitus, Suetonius, Dio Cassius, and so on. These, these guys write bios, and almost every Greco-Roman source includes miracles, prophecies, portents. Livy, probably second only to, Tiber- uh, to Tacitus for his reputation as a Roman historian, uh, Livy records the founding of Rome by Romulus and Remus, the boys who were raised by a wolf, hundreds of years before his earliest source. Well, that's obviously false. But we do doctoral dissertations on this material, and it's fair to use this, this material and start. You go, well, I don't trust any of it if there's miracles. Or if there's miracles, the Greco-Roman sources is not a rival to Christian miracles. Then you've got to ask the question of which miracles are, are evidenced. And I'll just say this to be provocative, and then I'm going to have to move on to my minimal facts deal. Um, Almost every skeptic, skeptical scholar, not the fly-by-night guys that don't work in the field, that just take shots at Christianity, but skeptical scholars, I don't care how liberal they are, how far the left, virtually everybody today believes that Jesus was a miracle worker. Now, they're going to differ on how supernatural these things were and everything else. That's another question. But it's almost unanimous today, among even Jesus Seminar people, They'll call Jesus a miracle worker and an exorcist. In fact, two of the best books that are out on this subject are each almost 500 pages long, arguing the way critics argue from the New Testament to show that Jesus did this. But the, what is being proclaimed is the best book just came out. Do you guys know that Craig Keener's books just came off? They were at the ETS, which is why we're here in San Francisco, Evangelical Theological Society. And on the table, Baker Academic Books, a two-volume set of books on the miracles of Jesus, more than a thousand pages. Ben Witherington, who's teaching somewhere here tonight, excellent New Testament scholar, Ben calls it the best thing ever written on the miracles of Jesus. And it documents Jesus as a miracle work. We're not counting the resurrection. We're talking about people he touched and healed and exorcisms, nature miracles, and so on. And then Craig does a bunch of contemporary miracles bunch of contemporary miracle claims, and he just lays the data there and says, you make these decisions. Now, some of you maybe are not Christians, you're skeptics, you hear your Christian friends say miracles are still occurring today. Craig documents a bunch of them, including, and you're going to have to make your own decisions about these things, including resurrections, Lazarus-type resurrections, where people are going to die again, not Jesus-type resurrections. But this is over a thousand pages long. The guy who's doing it has a PhD from Duke, and he has a minor in classics. When he did his commentary in the Gospel of John, he had 20,000 cross-references to classics. His commentary in Acts, which is coming, his commentary from Acts, I understand it's going to have, it's going to be several thousand pages and 100,000 classical references. So just check this out. Two volumes, Miracles, Craig Keener, K-E-E-N-E-R, Baker books. Okay, I'm just going to stop right there. I'm just, all I'm making is two points. New Testament books are in the right place, right time, closest to the data to be taken seriously as Greco-Roman biography. 
and that they're much better positioned than almost anything in the ancient world. And secondly, if miracles bother you because they're in the New Testament, look at that data for Jesus being a miracle worker. And here's one odd thing. The, you know how we think that when legend happens, the story keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger? John is down here at plus 65. John reports less miracles than any other gospel. Critics don't talk about that. When things don't fit their thesis, they quit talking. But why does John have less miracles than Mark does? And Mark's the earliest. Okay, I'm done with some of these reliability deals. I'm gonna move now to this minimal facts thing, and I'm gonna use the New Testament the way skeptics use the New Testament. And I'm gonna argue that if you use data scholars allow, Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now, let me just start with a provocative comment from one of the top historical Jesus scholars around. I believe he called himself a liberal. His name is E.P. Sanders. He recently retired from Duke. He used to teach at Oxford. He's got a couple books out that changed the course of New Testament scholarship, very reputable. He wrote a little book, I believe 1993. It's called The Human Figure of Jesus. And he starts with data scholars know. Data that scholars know about the historical Jesus. And guess what he says when it comes to the aftermath of Jesus' death? He's telling you what scholars believe today, what critics believe. And he says, scholars agree that after his death, Jesus appeared to his early disciples. And then he says, he says this twice in the book, Jesus appeared to his disciples. How he appeared, exactly how he appeared, I'm not prepared to say. But twice he says, my point is, he's not even giving his view. He's telling you what the consensus of scholarship is today. And he says, Jesus appeared to his early followers. Skeptics concede that much? Well, I've got an article on my website. You can check it out, GaryHabermas.com. It's underneath the articles tab. It's an, it's an article published in the Journal for the Study of the Historical Jesus, which is a critical journal. It's interesting. Um, I'm an evangelical. When I sent them the material, they called me and they said, um, you want us to consider this for publication, right? Yeah. Um, uh, a little embarrassed to tell you this, but if you knew what our journal was about, you'd know we don't publish things on resurrection because we think that Jesus' life ended on Good Friday. Do you still want us to consider your article? I had a little egg on my face because I hadn't read their pricey on what their journal does. It was just Bill Craig said to me, he goes, hey, you want to publish this? Man, it'd be a coup if you got into the Journal for Study of Historical Jesus. Why don't you send it to them? Well, he hadn't read it either. He hadn't read the prices either. <laughs> they said, we don't take articles in this, but do you want us to send it out to our readers? You know, we don't want them. But do I said, I had to keep a stiff upper lip, right? Yeah, send it out. See what they say. All right. A few months later, he said, hey, do you mind if we hang on to this a little bit longer? I know we've had it pretty long, but we're still considering it. Yeah, go ahead. Called me a few months later and they said, guess what? We're gonna do a whole issue on resurrection. Yours is gonna be the lead article. <laughs> now here's what's interesting. I'm an evangelical, right? My article is on what critical scholars believe on the resurrection. They're letting me tell them what they believe. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying that's horrible, I'm just saying I'm not, I'm not saying that like in a making fun of way. I'm just saying this, these data are out there and you can find what the critics are saying. And that's what I'm gonna be using here, okay? 
So I'm going to cut this gap down considerably because I'm going to use two passages from Paul. And you go, but there you go again, use the New Testament. Critics use the New Testament. They will use it. If you don't, they will use it. Because they think, like studying Homer or something else, in fact, they'd say, don't even compare it to Homer. It's way better than Homer. But they'd say, there's some texts that are better uh, uh, accepted than others. Here's an example. They'd say, the Apostle Paul has 13 books that bear his name. Now, here's a skeptic talking. They're going to say, we're not going to let you use those 13 books, because we think a lot of them were written by Paul. We'll let you use six or seven of the books. They call these the authentic epistles. And if you doubt what I'm saying, pick up Bart Ehrman's Introduction to the New Testament, and you can see he will list all these books as acceptable books to use because Paul's a known quantity. He's a scholar who changed his mind, who was at the right people, right time, knew the brothers and disciples of Jesus, was a leader before he became a Christian, leader of his people. He was a religious scholar. Paul is an honest writer. Inspired? No. Scholars don't talk, skeptics don't talk like that. Not inspired, but he's honest. He knows the sources. He'll tell you the right state of things. You you have to have a reason to disbelieve Paul. But I'll only let you use six of his books. Well, you have a decision to make. If you're going to grad school, it's not wise to sit there and go, no, I want to argue for the books you don't accept. (laughs) Don't think you're getting your PhD. But but what if you just take the data they give you? And what are they going to give you unanimously? Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1st Thessalonians, and Philemon. They'll always give you those sources. Now I'm going to use a text from two of those books. Virtually nobody will tell you these are not authoritative. 1st Corinthians chapter 15, we started with it. And the end of Galatians 1, beginning of Galatians 2. Those two texts. All right, where are we on our timeline? 1 Corinthians is written about 55 A.D. Some will say 58. Some will say 54, 53. I mean, 55 is a fair date. And we're at plus 25. Earlier than the Gospels, and and I think we should use the Gospels. I think we need people who are going to do dissertations on the Gospels and reestablish their authority, and they're coming back in right now. I'll just say, the best book on this topic right now is Richard Baucom's book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, almost 500 pages from a Cambridge University scholar saying there's eyewitness testimony behind the Gospels, we need to use them. But they're going to grant you that Paul's in the right place at the right time. So for right now, I'm going to take Paul and run. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul started, just to remind you again, Paul says, when I came to you, I gave you the Gospel. This is the Gospel I preached. And Depending on how you responded, that determines on where you that determines where you are vis-a-vis Christianity. He says whether you're saved or not. Then verse three, I gave you what I was given. Now it's very, very important, and that's why the critics like Paul. Because in the New Testament, there are a bunch of early creedal statements. We can pursue this during the QA if you want, but these early creedal statements are early texts that predate the book in which they're written. There are dozens of them in the New Testament. And many of the best ones, best as in early, go back to the 30s A.D. And so Paul is the right guy, right place, scholar. 
He knows the disciples and brothers of Jesus. He's checked out the sources, as you'll see. And he says, I gave you what I was given. This is when he wrote it, a mere plus 25. He says in the first two verses, the same message I gave when I came to you. When did he come to Corinth? Some people say this is the easily, most easily identified date in the New Testament. He comes to Corinth 51 to 52 AD. We know because there's an inscription with the name of the leader of Corinth. He held a post mentioned in the New Testament and we're told that he was in charge when Paul came to Corinth. There's an inscription that's been found and what's really interesting about this is that these Greek leaders only served for one year. So it was 51 to 52 AD. All right, so Paul writes this material. Paul taught the same thing to them, plus 21. Paul says, I gave you what I was given. When, where, and from whom did Paul receive this material? Well, let me give you the critical uh, conclusion, and then I'll give you the data for it. Richard Baucom says, in this book I referred to, he calls us a New Testament consensus. Now, I've been saying this for 35 years, actually, that this argument, that we can get this material back to 35. But Richard Baucom says at one time in one book, and everyone says, Richard Baucom says it, because he's that respectable. Cambridge University, he says it's a consensus New Testament position that Paul received this material about 35 AD. How would you know that? We don't have any books from that time. How do we know Paul checked this stuff out in 35 AD? Paul's an authoritative source. We're using one of the authoritative books, and Paul does the math for us. Let's do the math. Here's the cross. When did Paul become a Christian? Now, an another way, if you prefer, another way to ask this is how soon is Acts 1 after Acts, how soon is Acts 9 after Acts 1? Some people put Paul's conversion, the Damascus experience, where he, he had an experience that he believed to be an appearance of the risen Jesus. He, some people put that at plus one. That's a minority view, but some people put a plus one. Plus two is quite popular. Two or three are the most popular views. A few, I mean, somebody's going to say four. But the most popular views are the Damascus experience, or Acts 9, is about two to three years after Acts 1. So, Paul's conversion is about, let's just do two real quickly. He comes to the Lord, he believes he sees the Lord, comes a plus two, and then he says in Galatians chapter one, verse 16, he says, I met the Lord, and then he says, I didn't go running up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before me. I spent three years with the Lord in Arabia, and then I went up to Jerusalem to see the apostles, okay? Here's the math again. If Paul comes at plus two, he spends three years with the Lord and then goes up to Jerusalem at the end of three years, two plus three, five. Go, well, I think Paul's conversion was plus three. Okay, good. Plus three, goes up to Jerusalem, 36 AD, plus six. And so, Baucom says consensus view that Paul comes up, and, and you can get a whole list of guys who say that he was in Jerusalem a maximum of six years after the cross. So this is really, really early. Now, what's this based on? Well, in Galatians 1.18, Paul says, then I went up to Jerusalem after three years, and I spent 15 days with Peter 
and James, the brother of the Lord. Now, what's the theme of the book of Galatians? What do you think they talked about? Well, I mean, just knowing Paul, Paul says, I preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. Paul can't go anywhere for 15, it's impossible. No one's gonna argue that Paul went to Jerusalem for 15 days and didn't mention the gospel data to, to Peter and James. Besides, the theme of the book of Galatians, I mean, in a sentence, goes like this. It's all about the gospel. Get it right or you're reprobate, you know, but make sure you know what the gospel is. Don't go some other way and you're a Christian. Galatians about ascertaining the truth of the gospel, not going off and trying to do good works or other things. It's all about the gospel. So Paul comes at about plus five, plus six, and he spends 15 days with Peter and James. The well-known Cambridge New Testament scholar of the last generation, C.H. Dodd, made a very famous comment. He said, Paul spent 15 years with Paul spent 15, 15 years. Paul spent 15 days with Peter and James, and it's safe to say that they did more than talk about the weather. <laughs> All right, so Paul talks to them here and gets this material. Now in Galatians 1.18, there's a Greek word, hysteresi. The root word is histor, H-I-S-T-O-R. H-I-S-T-O-R. It's a Greek word from which we get our English word history, doesn't necessarily mean history, but it's a Greek word. And in several non-evangelical word studies, histor is the work of a person who goes and gets eyewitness data. You know, when you turn on your news at night and it says, eyewitness news, the, uh, histor has to do with somebody who goes and checks out the data firsthand, doesn't rely on somebody else's report, goes and checks it out. And Paul says, I went to Jerusalem at about plus five, talk about the gospel, talked with Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, and I did the work of a first-hand reporter. Then, as there's no chapter division there in the originals, and, and Paul moves right into Galatians 2, and he says, 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem. Critics put this at about 48 AD, or plus 18. And he said, I spent, I, I went to Jerusalem. And, you know, Galatians 2, 2 is an incredible verse. Listen to what Paul says. Talk about honesty. Paul says, I went up to Jerusalem to set before them the gospel I was preaching to see if I was running or had run in vain. But what? Yeah, I went up to Jerusalem. I put the gospel on the table, the gospel I was preaching. I want to make sure we're all on the same page. I want to make sure we weren't preaching a different gospel. I want to make sure everybody was saying the same thing. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? I wanted to see if what I was preaching was the same thing we're all preaching. You go, Paul, if you don't mind me saying so, it took you 18 years to do that? I think Paul would say, you know, you're really not listening to my argument. Let me give it to you again. Jesus did it. I met him, plus three. You got a better source? I didn't think so. Plus five, I spent 15 days with Peter and James. Can you beat that? Yeah, okay, right. All right, well, Plus 18, guess who's here? Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, Paul, and John, the big four. You can't pick anybody in the early church who's more influential. And you go, well, Barnabas and Titus were there. Well, yeah, they're, they're teaching breakout sessions. <laughs> <laughs> 
some of you folks have come a long distance because of the whole, you get everybody. You might even stay in a hotel for four days because, man, it's going to cost us some expense, but we just want to see all these guys together. How far would you have gone to hear Peter, Paul, and Mary? No, she might have been there. But <laughs> Peter, Paul, James, the brother of Jesus, and John. The biggest, most influential guys. Paul said, it's at least the third time I've checked this out. He's a good researcher. You know, you couldn't email a message. It takes a long time to get on a ship and come back to Jerusalem and check this out. And then Paul says in verse 6, Galatians 2, 6, five words in English. They added nothing to me. I set before them the gospel as preacher, make sure we're all on the same page, and they added nothing to me. You know, you hear people say today there were multiple gospels going around in the, in the early church. You go, what are your data for that? Well, it's because you Orthodox people destroyed the other heretical books. Then how do you know there were any? Well, there must have been. Because we have them later. Well, see, that's a problem. You have them later. If you want to use heterodox books, you have to you get them from the second and third and fourth centuries. But I say to people, the people say to me sometimes, why did you only put, why did Christians only put four Gospels in the canon? I'll say, sorry, we took everything that was available by 100 AD. That's all there was. See, Paul went back and checked it out, and they added nothing to me. Now that's from the disciples' perspective of proving Paul. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 11, talking about the, the disciples who saw appearances of the risen Jesus, Paul said, whether it is I or them, so we preach and so you believe. Isn't that incredible? So I, Paul said, I don't care if you ask me, ask Peter, ask John, ask James. We're all going to preach, we're all preaching the same thing. You ever thought about that? Oh, get this, here's an end note. For those of you who have had, you'd say, well, you know, I'd like to be a minister, or I'd like to do something, but you don't know, my past, I have some things where I've, I'm not proud of some things in my past. Well, think about these four people at Jerusalem. Three out of the four had issues. Paul was a persecutor, he killed people for their commitment to the Lord, and he's here, and he's a big name. Peter denied his Lord three times, he's there. James was an unbeliever. In fact, James 3, the Greek says, Jesus' family members thought he was nuts. The Greek says they thought he was beside himself. And you know, they tried to say, come on, come on, come on over here, you're embarrassing us. We gotta live here, you're embarrassing us. How would Jake have been there when Jesus appeared to his brother, James? Seriously, I mean, what would it look like? Jesus goes, bro, it's me. <laughs> and here's the scars. It's me. What did he do? Did he fall on his knees? All we know is that he was the pastor of the early church because he met the risen Jesus. Three of the four guys had issues, which increases the value of their testimony because they didn't have reason to agree, especially not James and Paul. All right, I'm going to have to wrap this up real quickly, so let me get back here. This is only plus five. Don't lose track of what this is. 
This is only when Paul heard their experiences. Paul knew his, but this is only when Paul heard their experiences. If he heard it from Peter and James, they had it before he had it. And it takes a while to write these texts, to get these texts stylistically. It may be similar today to you got words to a song, but you still haven't made it into a song yet. Because in the Greek, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following reads like this. Da, 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 da. Da, 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 da. That's not how the Greek sounds. But what I mean is, it's, it is in stanzas. It's believed to be in stanzas like that. It takes a while to put it in that form. So this is when Paul hears it. They had it before Paul. It takes a while to put it in that form. And the events are right here. And in fact, the three leading scholars today who study this early Christology, the three guys, Larry Hurtado, Ed, just retired from Edinburgh, James D.G. Dunn, just, hired, just retired from Durham, and the aforementioned Richard Bauckham from Cambridge. They've just all said recently that coming out of the gate in 30 AD, Christianity could only have survived if there were two doctrines from the beginning. It didn't develop down there. These two doctrines came out from the beginning, and here's the two. A high Christology, Jesus was worshiped, a high Christology and the resurrection. If he was resurrected, he died. So you have death, resurrection, and deity of Jesus, the gospel. James D.G. Dunn, who's as influential as anybody in New Testament scholar in studies today, James D.G. Dunn says the latest this material could have been put in that early cadence, da 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 the earliest this could have been written is six months after the cross. So if the cross is 30 AD, the experiences are even earlier, but the material was categorized, put in stanzas, six months later. Folks, we have data that go back to the earliest times. Eyewitness, and I didn't do eyewitness the way evangelicals usually do. It's a little harder to go through the Gospels, but we're using Paul. Paul was an eyewitness. Michael Martin, the well-known atheist philosopher who goes after Christians, says... We only have one testimony from an eyewitness to a resurrection appearance, and that's Paul. Now, do you want to get upset with him and say, well, there's a lot of other eyewitnesses, or you want to say, let's talk about Paul? See, I mean, he gives you Paul. What makes E.P. Sanders say scholars allow that the earliest um, disciples thought they saw Jesus? Okay, I'm going, to close, I'm going to bring this to closer real quickly and then ask you if you have any questions. Let's go to the end of 1 Corinthians 15, last verse. <coughs> Paul says a lot of things follow from the resurrection of Jesus being true. Ministry follows. He says, stand firm, because there's, uh, nobody has a better message than this. He says, stand firm in the faith. Secondly, he says, your labor in the Lord's not in vain. So be steadfast. Go about your work. In fact, the very next work, the very next verse, Paul's taken up um, an offering for poor believers. That's 16.1, 1 Corinthians 16.1. And then he says, back up a couple verses, he says the main thing that's true because of the resurrection is the resurrection of believers. The resurrection of Jesus is linked to almost every area of doctrine in the early church. Almost every area of doctrine. But the one that's mentioned the most, almost 20 times in the New Testament, believers are told that they will be raised from the dead like Jesus. John says we shall see him as he is and we shall be like him. Paul says he'll change our vile body to be like unto his glorious body. Many other texts. And I tell people, if you back up to 1 Corinthians 15, 50, 56, 57, Paul 
is taunting death. He's taunting death. And he says, death, where's your sting? Grave, where's your victory? He gets this from the Old Testament. But what he's saying is the resurrection's changed the normal order of things, and eternal life is here for those who give their lives to Christ. But Paul is taunting death, seriously. I mean, he's, he's like, in our language today, I started out by talking about hockey and mixed martial arts and football and so on. Paul's getting in Satan's face, or he's getting in death's face, if you want to say it that way. Because he's, he, he, what, basically what Paul's doing is, he, he's going, he's going, you've got something on me, death? You're a loser. Seriously. Because when he says death, where's your sting? Grave, where's your victory? He's going, you lost. You lost. You lost. Look at the score. I mean, that's what he's doing. And he's saying, since Christ has been raised from the dead, and he knows people, he knows he can be hurt. He gives a list of how many things have happened to him. He knows he can still be hurt. Scholars today call this the already, but not yet. Jesus has conquered the strongest force in the universe, death. It's not here yet, but the basis is already done. In fact, those who go on before us, Paul says, they've not died in vain. So that's the difference of whether Christ had been raised from the dead or not. That, he, that, that death has been defeated, eternity has been ushered in for those, way back to the first two verses, for those who, who respond properly to Christ. So I'm going to go ahead and stop right here. And, and uh, if, now, again, if some of you folks have to leave, I don't know how long before they'll kick us out. I've heard we have to be out of, the, out of here at 10 o'clock. And us, the speakers, we've got to go back to San Francisco. The last bus leaves at 10. But until someone kicks us out, I'll stay here. Uh, one thing I should mention, I haven't talked much about naturalistic theories, and you skeptics will often say, yeah, but I can give you a thesis that works better with this than resurrection. I'm going to say that the same data the scholars admit are the data that disprove alternate theories. And that's why today, the vast majority of scholars, vast majority of skeptics, do not give naturalistic responses. You still, again, you have to go with Go back to E.P. Sanders where he says, today the consensus of scholarship is that the earliest disciples saw, he doesn't even say thought they saw Jesus. I say thought they saw Jesus. Sanders says the earliest disciples saw Jesus. That's pretty amazing. This is the scholarship that has really changed resurrection studies. And more people today in the literature think something literally happened to Jesus after his death than those who think nothing happened. Okay? Do we have, we, we do have at least one mic, do we have two, we have two mics. Okay, here's some questions. Um, you talk, is this on? Hello? You talked about pre-existing uh, phrases in the epistles that scholars agree uh, were predated the writing down. Can you talk about what those are and why? Why they agree that it's... Yeah, this is something that hasn't made it into the pews yet in our evangelical churches. In fact, it's not even generally taught in seminary. But in the New Testament, there are a bunch of early statements, and, and, and these are different, but roughly synonyms, almost synonyms, would be creeds, confessions, traditions, or what they're called. And you know they're there because, uh, for example, the writers like Paul Paul says twice in the book of 1 Corinthians, I gave you what I was given. That means that's a tradition. That's something he's passing on. Sometimes the New Testament says, here's a trustworthy saying. Or sometimes it says, um, uh, observe the traditions of the elders. 
So it tells us that there's something coming that was passed on to him. Let me remind you too that, the, that Josephus says that what Pharisees did was pass on tradition. Paul was a Pharisee, so Paul's used to doing this kind of research. That's what the scholars did. Remember JP said Jesus confronted the professors of his day? They taught just the same way we do today, careful checking of tradition and passing on. And you go, well, how can I tell where these are? Well, some of the latest translations, including the one I was using up here, many of the latest translations, I believe the CEV does this, um, they are starting to put these in, in um, verse. You can flip through the New Testament and you can find a lot of them yourself. So scholars have known this. I mean, it's just been a given for probably 30 years. That studied, you, you study these in grad school. And they, and they almost always concern the gospel message. Not always, but they almost always concern the gospel message. So like Paul says, I gave you a f what I received as of first importance. The other time he says that is the communion passage. Christ died for sins according to the scriptures. I'm sorry, that's this one. But in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and he broke it, gave thanks. So again, that's about the gospel. That's about his shed blood. So... Um, you have to be really good in Greek if you want to do these things, because what, what, how they know these things are in the text is that they, the Greek breaks the syntax of the, I guess the best thing I tell you, if you folks have written grad papers or research papers, and you try to tie your words into a quote from somebody, and you can't get the syntax exactly right, that's how they read in the New Testament. They're like not syntactically, you know, it, it's, it's hard to pick them up, but scholars agree where they are. And skeptics are the ones who discovered this stuff. It's not, this is not, a, it, was, it was not an evangelical enterprise, although evangelicals have been getting into it in the last decade or so. Okay. Um, so despite all this evidence, I guess, why is it that there's still so many theories out there and still so many skeptics? In spite of the evidence, why is it that there are so many... People who are still... Just very Disbelief. skeptical, disbelieving about Excellent this. question. If the evidence is so good, why do people disbelieve? I'll give you an e a real easy but obvious answer. First of all, um, study psychology. Seriously, people don't believe what they don't want to believe, whether there's data or not. Christians don't believe things. Christians are, can be prejudiced the same way like non-Christians can be. We don't believe things. Let's put it this way. If you're a Republican or you're a Democrat and someone tells you so-and-so, you know what I'm saying? You go, I don't care what he said, he's a liar. So, so first of all, it doesn't make sense. And then when it does make sense, you just call him a liar because you say all those guys lie. So what I'm saying is people don't believe uh, what they don't want to believe. And, and there's been a lot of studies on the nature of belief. And we, there's something much more important to us than evidence as human beings. It, we believe things almost always when they're in accord with what we previously believe. In fact, in a recent secular scientific, uh, sorry, well, scientific, but in a recent secular psychological test, one of the people groups in this country who are angriest with God are atheists. Almost 20% of atheists are angry at God, which prompted one fellow to say, this is a great quote. He said, you know something? I don't believe in unicorns, but I don't spend my whole life hating on them. <laughs> That's a cool response. People don't believe what they don't want to believe. That's all of us. That's Republicans, Democrats. That's wealthy and 
poor, that's, that's just how we are. And so really, the fact that there's good evidence has nothing to, well, has very little to do with, with people quote unquote converting, with people changing their views. That's why when Bill Craig got up here and read that testimony today, there are people who study it. And I, I'm sure Craig Hazen is gonna do this tomorrow. You can talk to these two guys right here afterwards who came uh, to Christianity from Islam. I, I'm just, I'm gonna say out loud uh, from my skeptical and almost Buddhist leanings, um, no religion in the world has anything like the kind of apologetics Christians have. Other religious people will debate, but here's how non-Christians generally, there are exceptions, but here's how non-Christians generally debate. If I'm the non-Christian, you're the Christians, here's how they debate. You're wrong. What'd you say? You're wrong. I don't believe that. You're wrong. You're wrong. But here's how they don't debate. I'll give you 10 reasons for my position. They don't do that. They don't have 10 reasons for their position. And nobody has anything like a resurrection. So if you want to compare data for data, no, we don't take a backseat to anybody. And that includes scientific naturalism, as you heard JP talk about today. So data, yeah, but that's not the issue. People don't change parties just because you give them an argument for a different candidate. That's not what makes people change parties, because they're angry at the other side, right? And atheists are frequently, not always, but a fair percentage of atheists are really angry at God. You ask some of them, these guys deal with skeptics. You talk to these folks and you say, if you're just, why do you care if Christians believe in God? Here's the, here's the answer from my atheist friends. I have a lot of atheist friends, we chat a lot. Here's the answer that kills me. I'm just interested in truth. Well, really, you should be interested in a football game. You know, if, if all you have, if all you've got is this life, like Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Don't waste time trying to change losers. If you don't believe what they believe, watch a football game. Just relax, you know? Go out for a steak dinner. I don't think, I'm not saying this about all of them, but I'm just saying a good number of them, it's not so much truth, it's so much that your beliefs are a threat to them. Okay, here's, here's one back here. There's one there, okay. Yes, sir. Uh, uh, you, uh, I would like to ask for your opinion concerning how you would bridge what uh, Lessing calls the ugly ditch, moving from the historical data of the resurrection of Christ to proving that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In other words, how do you bring about the bridge law between the facts of history and the necessary truths of reason. That's one question. Second question I have is, if you maintain the distinction between heresy and myth. Between history and? Heresy and myth. Um, heresy, heresy. Myth. Uh, yeah, history if you make myth. a distinction, okay. would you say in some sense that heresy is the indirect proof for the resurrection of Jesus? What's an indirect proof? Heresies, the false teachings. Heresy? Yeah. Would you say in some sense they indirectly prove the resurrection of Jesus? Okay. All right. First question is what about Lessing's ugly ditch? Great question. Did part of my dissertation on that guy. Um, Lessing in, this, in the 18th century has a very famous, it's not really a critique of Christianity, but it's a critique of people who need evidence to believe. And he says they're in between history on the one hand and faith on the other hand, there's an ugly ditch which I cannot get across no matter how many times I make the leap. What he says is history cannot come to the aid of establishing faith. Faith should stand on its own. 
and he said he believed, he said he was a Christian, a lot of people doubted that, but that's beside the point. He says faith stands on its own, doesn't need to be evidenced, history doesn't come to the basis. I, I would just say, even skeptics today, they wanna know if there's basis for what you believe. I think today, in a world where science reigns, where naturalism reigns, people wanna know if there's evidence. To me, it's, it, it's not even, it, it's not an objection that almost anybody will give today. That doesn't mean it's false. But I would say the problem with Lessing's history doesn't come to the aid of faith is if you're gonna ask me to believe something about Jesus and then you teach as Christians do that what you believe determines a, what, Paul said whether Christ was raised from the dead or not determines whether Christianity is true and whether your faith is true or false and whether your loved ones who died have died in vain. The New Testament teach. let's just start there. The New Testament teaching says history is, if these things didn't happen in history, you have no reason to believe. So history puts, New Testament puts the two together. I would say evidentially, secondly, if history does back faith at this point, you know, why is it, I think JP was doing this, why is it today that we think hist that faith should just kind of float without being tied to anything? If there, if there are data on which faith should be, could be based, if, if you're a person, or anybody here, if says, well, I'm really glad you have evidence and I came to this conference with somebody else, but I personally don't need evidence, I just believe, fine. I mean, if that's what somebody is, that's fine. But if somebody says, I want to know what the data are, and if I have to believe the resurrection in order to be a Christian, if Christ's resurrection determines my resurrection, then I want data, because I want to know where, the, where Christianity stands vis-a-vis -vis other belief systems. I think Lessing's just plain wrong. It just doesn't make sense to say I'm gonna believe in a vacuum without data. Now, you say, could heresy be kind of, a, if I understood your question, could it be kind of a backdoor evidence for Christianity? Yeah, I, I think in a way that's what I was getting at when I said why are 20% of atheists in the survey, why are they angry at God? I think the fact that people that are ticked and people that keep going after Christians and they can say, well, it's because you guys are taking over so much of society and doing your own thing. Well, that's what America's about. You know, people can believe whatever they want and people have elections and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm just saying, yeah, the fact that people, A, don't believe, but they spend their time going after it, then secondly, people believe other things. I do think there's some things there that say, um, sort of paradoxically, that that is a witness to those who, I, I mean, I think it is. I think that's a pointer. I wouldn't say it's a very strong evidence, but I think it's a pointer, okay? Okay, we've got a lot of hands back here. ESPN has a show called First Take. A couple right. of weeks ago, they were at, uh, the, the, one, of the, one of the reporters asked, why is it do you think that Tim Tebow is hated by the media? Yeah. And he said, the, the, the guy in the media, he said, because he lives his faith so loud that it convicts us. It makes us uncomfortable. Therefore, we don't want it in our face, and he constantly puts it in our face. Whether he's on the sideline or on the field, Tim Tebow lives his faith. You made a mention, before we even got started, about the historians being, his, being hypocrites, about how they're willing to take the date of Homer as saying, wow, that's a great date, that's as close as we can get, that's authentic. But when we can get six months within the, within the resurrection of Jesus Christ, yep. that's not good enough. We yeah, need to get even closer. Yeah, and John's the worst New Testament source, if you want to say it that way, date-wise, at plus 65, which in ancient historical problem, in ancient historical terms, is not even close to being an issue. 
like I said, the best source for Tiberius is 15 years later. Tacitus on Tiberius is 15 years later than John on Jesus. And Paul's half the distance. So yeah, I think there's a lot of, let's put it this way. Let's be honest, if Christians were in power in the Western university system, we would probably do the same thing naturalists are doing. We'd probably try to squash other people who don't. That's just how humans behave, you know what I mean? We just kind of shut them up. Shut up, you're talking out against Christianity. Um, we'd probably do the same thing, and we might get lazy, and we might not learn the evidences. Do you ever think about that? Maybe, maybe it's that heresy question, but maybe it's good to be the minority because it forces us to come up with those who are attacking us. I'll tell you what, I, ha- I was in Western Europe just a few weeks ago, in uh, Northern Ireland, England, East and West, what used to be East and West Germany and Sweden. I was speaking in secular schools. You know how I was introduced in Sweden, University of Stockholm? They said, Gary Habermas is gonna come and talk about the resurrection. Welcome to the most secular country in the world. That's what they said. And they told me that there might be some, some hecklers while I'm talking. This is very secular society. We can't impress that on you enough. There's going to be some heck, you may have some hecklers, and you're definitely going to have some tough questions. I gave the same lecture. I got, I, well, I don't remember any critical question, real critical question. I might have had one. Then I went to, I was in Germany. I was in two universities in Germany, and I did this. And one guy raised his hand and asked about a naturalistic theory. He said, how do we know Jesus died on the cross? You know what was interesting about that? The guy who asked the question, and, and when I gave him reasons to how we know Jesus was de- daddy, he, he said, okay, and he was done. It wasn't that tough, but that was the only critical question I got that I remember from three universities, and that guy who asked the question was the campus minister. <laughs> so that's interesting. But I'm just saying, I think we would get lazy if we were in, you know, sometimes we say persecution makes the church stronger. I think philosophical and historical and scientific critique makes the church stronger. And I totally agree with JP. The stuff the church is doing today, our scholars, our scholars are more specific, better trained, they argue better. Just listen to the debates. Listen to anybody's debates you want. Yeah, we lose once in a while. We lose a debate here and a debate there, but it's few and far between. And when our best debaters are debating, we almost never lose. And that's that's just because we all happen to be good debaters, or is that because we have better material than other people have? I think if it was the best debaters, we wouldn't be winning the dialogue so many times. And people wouldn't be so angry at us. And why are 20% of atheists angry at God? I, I, you know, that, that's, that's a good point. I think it comes back to, to some of that. So, I don't know, maybe it's a good position to be in that we've had to, f- I can tell you this, 50 years ago when I started studying apologetics, we didn't have any apologists that are as specific and specialized as any of the hundred that we have in this country today. The stuff that's being produced today is better than anything that's ever been produced since Paul, in my opinion. Okay. Was that you? Who's that? Ah, yeah, she's the boss, you guys. (laughs) Yes, sir. So, uh, um, tonight's speech seemed to you seem to, I guess, give a reasonable case of how we can show that Jesus' presence after his resurrection to his disciple is is actually legitimate through a minimal fact methodology. Right. And I'm just thinking to myself, 
um, with the evidence that even the atheistic scholar, or the, the evidence that you use that the atheistic scholar, uh, I guess, approves of, I wonder what they would respond to what you have argued tonight. Because it seems like, in one sense, somebody could uh, be psychologically uh, stubborn, I guess mm -hmm. you could say. Sure. But we, it seems like, like that too. Yeah, it seems, but it seems like there could be a reasonable doubt with, you know, with, uh, I guess, okay. this minimal fact. The most common yeah. response you get is something really happened to Jesus, but I don't know what it was. Now, I'm not saying that to make fun of it, but they'll go with you on the data and they can get you to these guys saw something or these guys thought they saw something that was but they'll often just say, I don't know what it was. Well, if I'm a skeptic and the data are this strong, I'm probably gonna say something like that. I'm either gonna say, yeah, something happened, I don't know what it is, because I don't wanna deal with it. Or I'm gonna make up a naturalistic theory, and some of them do that. The only thing is, when they make up naturalistic theories, here's a naturalistic theory, Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. What really happened was fill in the blank. You gotta fill in the blank. This is not a naturalistic theory. No way, miracles don't happen. No way, I don't believe it. Because that counts no more than a Christian saying, well, I believe it, okay, so we're even. You know, that's not a naturalistic theory. But if they fill in the blank and say, here's what really happened, the same data that we're using here go against that theory. And I've had guys say to me in debates, they'll say, I've heard your stuff before and I know the way you argue, and if I pick a naturalistic theory, you're gonna kinda of get me in a corner with this and I don't want that. I'll say, okay, wait a minute. You're a naturalist, yes. You don't believe the resurrection, right. You think something natural happened, yes. Then why don't you tell me what it was? Because that's where you're coming from. I'm a supernaturalist, I'll tell you what I think. God raised Jesus from the dead. So why don't you tell me what you think happened? No, you're just trying to get me in the corner. Okay, here's my, <laughs> here's my point. If our data can get them in the corner, so much the worse for what data they don't have. So, but those are the two ways they might do it. Something happened, I don't know what, and pick a naturalistic theory. But very few people do that anymore. It was way more popular 100 years ago. Okay, Pardon? Okay, Abigail has spoken. I think we're done. Biola University offers a variety of biblically-centered degree programs, ranging from business to ministry to the arts and sciences. Visit biola.edu to find out how Biola could make a difference in your life.